through verses 23 through 28. And if we're not distracted, let's uh, go ahead and pull that back in. And while you're turning there, and we're continuing here to consider Jesus' indictment against the leadership of Israel. And as we come into this next section here in verses 23 through 28, we're really in many ways coming to the very essence of the error of these religious leaders. And really, for that matter, so much of false religion and hypocritical religion. And he's going to address this essential error of theirs, which is essentially their false understanding of worship and holiness that stems from their false view of God. And then it just fleshes itself out in a system of religious hypocrisy, a bankrupt system of religion. Now, worship is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. And for that matter, it's really at the heart of what it means to be human. We were created to worship God. But particularly for Christians, worship is at the very center of our identity. To be a Christian is not simply to be saved from our sin. It is to become a true worshiper of God rather than a worshiper of self and of idols and other things. So Jesus said this. Speaking to the Samaritan woman in John 4, 23, he said, An hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. The Father seeks worshipers, and that's what we are to be. And at the center of true worship is holiness. It's holiness. Five times in the Old Testament... God calls his people to worship him or to praise him in the beauty of holiness. In the beauty of holiness. So worship and holiness are then are at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. To truly know God, to truly worship him, to truly be in fellowship with him through the Son and by the Spirit. Is to walk with an attitude and a life and a heart of worship and holiness. Now, no doubt any church or individual that claims to be a Christian would agree with this. Nobody would dissent from that truth. It's very plain. However, whether it is genuine or not is another question. And so in our passage this morning, Jesus is going to give us two criteria by which we can measure our life as a church and as individuals to see if our activity is truly an expression of worship and if our lives are truly marked by holiness as God would define it. Now, clearly with Israel's, with much of the church today, there was a great deal of religious activity, religious commitment, many external signs of commitment to God. But they are, as or were, as many are today, very far from the reality of true worship and holiness. What passed off as worship and holiness was nothing more than an empty shell of religious hypocrisy that never rose above the efforts of fallen man to manifest the true realities of spiritual life. Now, how can we discern this then? How can we know? How can we discern our own lives and what we witness around us? How do we know if we all fall under that same condemnation that Jesus is here giving to these religious leaders who no doubt in their own mind considered that they were truly worshiping God? As no doubt many do today. What does it look like to worship then in the beauty of holiness? Well, Jesus is going to answer these questions for us over the next two weeks. We'll 
read verses 23 through 28. We're only going to cover verses 23 through 24 this morning and look first at the idea of true worship. True worship. So read with me, beginning in verse 23 down to verse 28. We cover these next woes. Verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin... And have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside are full of robbery and self-indulgence." You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribe and Pharisee, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness." Go back up to verse 23 and let's notice first then that they were marked by a false understanding of worship or a deceived practice of worship. And the indictment that Jesus lays at their feet is essentially this, that they have a disproportionate view of God's commandments. They have a disproportionate view of God's commandments. Look at verse 23. He says, you tithe, but you neglect the weightier requirements of the law. In other words, you're meticulous in doing minute religious acts that are supposed to be demonstrations of worship to God, but you have neglected the thing that God most desires, in this case, love toward men. Now let's consider their understanding of tithing. God required a tithe from his people. They were not wrong in doing that. They did not pull these things out of the air. The issue that Jesus is confronting is not so much them inventing doctrines as perverting the ones that God gave to them. So tithing was a requirement of their religious life. He says you tithe. And so that was a mark of their religious devotion. You'll remember in Luke 18, the, the one who was trusting in himself, his own righteousness... Laid at the feet of God in his prayer, I tithe of all that I get. That was a mark of his righteousness. Now the term is literally to give one-tenth, to give one-tenth. And this is precisely what was commanded and demonstrated in the law. One-tenth then was the standard measure for the tithe. And it predates actually the Mosaic law, going back to the earliest of God's dealings with men. If you'll remember, Abraham paid a tenth of his... Winnings, as it were, to Melchizedek. Jacob, after God appeared to him in a dream, in that great dream of Jacob's ladder, Jacob said to the Lord, Of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. So that was God's design that we see continually in what his people offered to him and what he required from them. It was also a standard percentage in the Mosaic law. For example, in Leviticus 5.11, the extremely poor who could not bring a blood sacrifice, God accepted from them a tenth of an ephor, a fine flour for a sin offering. And that same amount was added to other offerings that they brought as God commanded in the Mosaic law. 
In 1 Samuel 8, 15, it was a tenth that Samuel told the people that the king was going to take from them to rule his kingdom. He will take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and your flocks. So, again, they have precedent for tithing a tenth. They're not coming up with that on their own. God clearly established that as a tithe that marked righteousness and obedience. But note that the tithes within Israel was as much a part of being a, a part of being a theocratic nation. In other words, the tithe that Israel gave was also largely a form of taxation, a form of taxation. As a theocratic nation, it meant not only that God was their head and their king, but it also meant that they had a land to care for, a temple to care for, the Levites to care for, and others in the nation. And there were basically three tithes then that were required. From the people. One, there was a general 10% tithe noticed in Deuteronomy 12, 11, and 17, in which he notes that they are to bring 10% of their livestock and their produce and their grain and other things. In Deuteronomy 12, 22 through 24, these tithes were specifically given for support of the national feast and celebrations of the nation when they came together. A second tithe is found in Deuteronomy chapter 14. Deuteronomy chapter 14. And in Deuteronomy 14, these tithes were to be brought to every three years to support the Levites and the poor. Let me just mention this to you. In verse 28, he says, At the end of every third year, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in that year, and you shall deposit in your town the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance among you, and the alien, the orphan, and the widow who are in your town shall come and eat and be satisfied in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. In other words, this tithe then was to provide not only for the Levites, but it was to provide for the orphan, the needy, the poor among the land. There's a third mention of a tithe in Leviticus 27:30, And this was a general tithe of the produce of the land. And it says this in Leviticus 27.30. Thus, all the tithe of the land, of the seed of the land, or of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. So by paying these tithes then, they were supporting the nation. They were caring for the poor. They were legitimizing the priesthood. They were obeying God. Now the purpose of the tithe. The tithe, then, was an act of obedience for them. But at its heart, at the heart of the tithe, was not only an act of obedience, but it was an acknowledgement that all things belong to God. That God created all things, that God gave them the land, that God gave them fruitfulness in the land, and it was an expression, then, of worship to Him. Just listen to this in Deuteronomy 26, verses 10 and 15. He says, Now behold, I have brought the first of the produce of the ground which you, O Lord, have given me, and you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. In verse 15, Look down from your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people Israel and the ground which you have given us, a land flowing with milk and honey as you swore to our fathers. In other words, they understand that everything that they had came from God. An expression of their worship in their obedience was an acknowledgement that what we're giving back is only a portion of what God has blessed us with and what he has entrusted to us. So it was an expression of worship that acknowledged God's ownership and gracious supply of all things for his people. And there was amount of sacrifice that was involved in it. It cost them something. 
it can cost them something of their own. And in times of obedience and their walking with God as a nation, largely in joy and faithfulness, it was done with great joy. But too often it was also done in hypocrisy or simply neglected. In either case then, the point is that tithing was an essential part of their religion. It was an essential part of their religion. And they were right then, in some sense, to be meticulous about it. Now I want to make a footnote here, because it certainly is in part of what's going through some of our minds. How does a tithing relate to us as a Christian? How does it relate to us as a Christian? Well, God has removed the command for a tithe. We are not a theocratic nation supporting a land and a priesthood and temple service and so forth. And he does not lay the requirement of a tithe as he did on the na- his people, Israel, as that nation would, had to bear those, the cost of those various things. Yet the requirement that God has given to us is really, in reality, even greater. Even greater than what he gave to them. And I think if there were a parallel with our attitude toward tithing would be found in the burnt offerings that they brought or some of the burnt offerings that were brought as a mere expression of worship and gratitude to God. Those offerings that weren't required, it was just the overflow of joy in the heart of the worshiper that they brought to God. And that is more the attitude of what God expects then from us in the New Testament. It is no less grounded in the knowledge of God's possession and provision of all things, nor is it less a response to his redemption. But now that redemption comes with the greater reality of Christ having been revealed. There's even more for us to look to and to be filled with gratitude for. In the great teaching of Paul on giving, he says in 2 Corinthians 8, he says this in verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's here giving them the motivation for their overwhelming giving to the needs of the body. He says this, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. We have as the standard of our giving to God, his giving of his son to us in redemption. And so God sets no limit. He sets no 10% limit on us as believers. He limits it only by the degree of worship and trust and faith in our hearts. As a matter of fact, he said in 2 Corinthians 8 to one who people who had given themselves first to the Lord and then to the work of giving that they gave even beyond their means. He said that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy, their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. So for us, we don't have a 10% requirement, but we have something much greater than that. We have worship that is given without limit or, and that ours is to be expressed or paralleled in our giving to the needs of God's work, the gospel. But for them, it was required. For them, it was a clear specific aspect of their worship to God. So in what way then did they pervert it? Well, let's consider that. Look what he says. He says, you tithe, and rightly so, mint, dill, and cumin. Now these were all common herbs among the people. Though nowhere in scripture are these things commanded specifically to be tithed to the Lord. However, it is very Logical, it's a logical deduction from Leviticus 27.30 that they could extend this through their rabbinic traditions to include even those 
items mentioned by the Lord here. And according to rabbinic teaching, they were, as with other things, meticulous in the exact observance of their tithing. They dutifully counted out seeds and they dutifully separated out one-tenth of these garden plants and herbs lest anyway they would somehow dishonor God and neglect to give to him what was his due. What God had coming from him and what God required from them. But this is what we have to notice and this is very important. Jesus is not rebuking them for their tithing and dill and cumin. That isn't his issue. Tithe it. You want to tithe mint, dill, and cumin? Fine. If you want to do that as an act of worship to God? Fine. As a matter of fact, he'll commend it later on in the verse. He says, these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Jesus does not condemn them for their tithing. Their error and their hypocrisy is not in what they did do, but notice it is what they did not do. It's what they neglected. It's what they failed to do. He says, you do those things, you tithe and you give, which is a right thing to do. But you have neglected, he says, the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. I want to make just a few observations here then. First is this, that there are some matters then of obedience that are greater than others. He says, you have neglected the weightier matters of the law. The term here for weightier is barus. It has the idea of heavy, heavy. Used metaphorically, it refers to something of great significance or something that is important, something that is even uh, cruel. Sometimes it's used in that sense. Here it refers simply to something of greater significance and importance. And we've mentioned in the past that the rabbis divided the law up into 613 commandments. 248 were positive, 365 were negative. And it was an ongoing discussion among the rabbis which commandments were weightier than others and which were less weighty than others. For some rabbis, the least significant then was Deuteronomy 22.6 that had to do with a bird's nest. And the greatest was Exodus 20.12, which had to do with children honoring their parents. So this idea of recognizing one is weightier than another is not illegitimate in itself. They're not wrong. God himself recognized this. For example, God commanded in the Old Testament law central to Israelite worship that they bring sacrifices and offerings. And yet God acknowledged that this was not the weightier part of the law. For example... In 1 Samuel 15, 22, we hear this. Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than that the fat of rams. Proverbs 21, 3 says this. To do righteousness and justice is desired by the Lord more than sacrifice. Hosea 6, 6. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. There is a difference. There are some things that are weightier than others, that are more important to God than are other things. Jesus himself acknowledged this. In Matthew 5, 19, he said, Whoever annuls one of the least of these my commandments, or these commandments. 
And we saw that, of course, in chapter 22, verse 36. A lawyer came and asked him, which is the greatest? And Jesus didn't say, ah, they're all the same. He says, I'll tell you what is the greatest. The greatest is to love God with everything and then to love your neighbor as yourself. That's second. So the problem wasn't in the fact that they tithed. The problem wasn't in the fact even that they tithed some things more than what God had commanded. And the, tie, the problem wasn't in the fact that they noticed some things as being weightier than others. Those were not the issues that Jesus is addressing. The problem is this. In what they recognized as important and what they thought was not as important. In the other words, what Jesus is rebuking them for is this. That they placed the value of their worship and these commandments of God on the wrong things. So the things that God held most precious, they did not. And the things that they held most precious in their system were the things that least mattered to God. That was the issue. The basic idea is that they had things out of proportion. They had things out of proportion. And so see, he says, you have neglected then the weightier provisions of the law. That's the problem. You don't understand your God's heart. What is it then are the weightier provisions of the law? Well, he's already mentioned that in the things that we read earlier in the Old Testament. It's this, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. In other words, God is much more concerned about our treatment of others than he is the minute details of religious duties. And the fact that they were blind to this, and so many today are blind to this, is quite amazing. But particularly that these these leaders of Israel, these teachers of the law, these experts in the scripture... The fact that they were blind to this is quite amazing. This was the repeated rebuke of the prophets against the nation of Israel. Let me just remind you of a few. We could go all over, particularly the Old Testament with this, but let me remind you of a few. In Isaiah 58, the people are going through their religious observance and they're wondering from God, why if we're doing all of these things in faithfulness to what you have commanded us, that you have shut your ear from us, that you are not blessing us, that you do not hear us. They said even in verse 2 that they delight in the nearness of God. Just said, why have we, they said, why have we fasted and you do not see? Why do we go through all of these things and you don't notice? And God says, is this not the fast which I choose, in verse 6, to loose, loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry, and bring the homeless poor into the house, when you see the naked to cover him, and do not hide yourself from your own flesh? In other words, God's saying, because you've got it all backwards. You're going through these prescriptions of the law, but you're not caring for one another. You're not meeting the needs of the poor. You're not protecting the weak and the helpless. So you don't know the heart of your God. And so God has shut his heart to you. They were certainly familiar with that. Listen to this again in Zechariah chapter 7. He says this, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, dispense true justice and practice kindness and compassion each to his brother. And do not oppress the widow or the orphan, the stranger or the poor. And do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. And of course they refused to listen to the Lord. And there God said again that he would not listen then to the cries of his people. So they should have understood this. They knew the cries of the prophet. They knew what God's 
true standard was. Listen to this, one, one last verse, one you're familiar with. We sing it sometimes. He says this in Micah chapter 6. And again, in Micah, as, as he is throughout the prophets, is rebuking them for their getting this backwards. He says in verse 6, With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings and yearling calves? The implied answer is no. Verse 7, does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? What can I give to the Lord that would satisfy him? What does God require? Verse 8, God has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness or mercy and to walk humbly with your God. In other words, it's not all of those things. It is a heart that is humble before God and before men. The true heart of religion, then, is our attitude and our acts of mercy and justice toward others. So let's consider these just briefly. He says, you failed then to exercise justice. You failed. You failed. You Count out your seeds, but you don't act with justice toward others. And the idea here is making a decision, an evaluation, a judgment of right and wrong in the case of men, in the case of disagreements. It's translated actually as court or sentenced in Matthew chapter 5. It's sometimes translated as judgment, but here it has the idea simply of justice of justice. It refers to making righteous decisions toward others and exercising righteous justice. And here these leaders, they failed miserably at that. They were a group of unjust leaders. And this is what Jesus is accusing them of. Now there's lots of places to go through to demonstrate this. Let me just mention to you one. We won't spend a lot of time here. But in John chapter 9, you remember that the blind man was healed by I mean, Jesus, he was carrying his pallet on the Sabbath. He ended up before the court of the Jews, and they're questioning him about how he was healed. His parents, essentially out of fear of the leadership, out of fear of being put out of the synagogue, rejected, denied him. They did not come and defend him, though clearly they could have done that. And so they called the man here in verse 24 a second time. They said, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, whether he is a sinner, speaking of Jesus, I do not know. For one thing I do know that I was, that though I was blind, now I see. Unwilling to listen, they said, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he said, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciple too, do you? They reviled him. They said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. They say, God, we know spoke to Moses. This man, we don't know where he is from. And the man answered, well, now here is an amazing thing that you do not know where he is from. And yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners. But if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. And their only response to what was irrefutable before them was to throw this man out and despise him. And they said, you were born entirely in sins and you are teaching us. And so they put him out of the synagogue. And Jesus put him out of their presence. And they, Jesus essentially said that here these leaders are claiming to see and yet 
They're blind, and so their sin is inexcusable. Those who should be exercising justice were exercising injustice and ruling in that way. And of course, this is seen in its greatest effect in how they treated Jesus. In Matthew 26, 59, it says the chief priest and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus. So they took him before the court in order to fulfill their legal proceedings. And yet in the process of their legal proceedings, they were engaged in lying and injustice to condemn him whom they knew really was innocent. As a matter of fact, even though they did that, they committed exactly what Jesus is rebuking them for here. They were meticulous not to break Mosaic laws while they were committing the most atrocious sin against their own God. Matter of fact, in Matthew 27, 6, after Judas threw back the silver to those who gave it to him to betray him, they said it's not lawful for them, them to put it in the temple treasury since it is the price of blood. And so they went and they bought a field where, where strangers could be buried. In John 18, 28, they would not enter the praetorium when Jesus was being led away. Why wouldn't they in there? enter there? Because they didn't want to be defiled so close to Passover. They were careful to avoid ceremonial uncleanness while unjustly sentencing their own Messiah to a death, condemning him who was innocent. And it was from the same fountain of hypocrisy and injustice that their whole system operated. He says, you fail to show justice. You fail to show mercy. Mercy. Mercy is kindness or concern for someone in serious need. The idea of compassion is very closely linked to mercy here. Now, in the Old Testament, the word mercy is used to translate often. You're familiar with this word, hesed. Hesed. And hesed is a unique word that is most often and centrally a term used to describe God's covenant love for his people. Sometimes it's translated as loving kindness. Very often it's translated as mercy. Mercy. In other words, mercy was uniquely the character quality of God that motivated him to enter into covenant with his people, that sustained them in that covenant. Mercy was central to God's relationship with his people. As a matter of fact, do you remember, what did they call the lid that was on top of the ark? It was the mercy seat. It was the mercy seat. That's where the blood of the atonement was sprinkled. It's the place where the high priest entered to sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice to make atonement for the sin of Israel. In other words, their entire relationship was founded on God's mercy. And not only in the old covenant, but in the new covenant, that is the very foundation of God's Making us, or his covenant with us in the new covenant. Listen to Titus 3. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy and by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. And so those who had received mercy then were to show this mercy to others. But that is the very thing that they failed to do. So Jesus was constantly rebuking them for this. You remember in chapter 9, verse 13, when they chastised him, essentially through his disciples, for eating with sinners and tax gatherers. Jesus said to them, go and, desire, go and learn what this means. I desire compassion, which is actually the term for mercy, and not sacrifice. Go and learn the heart of God and the law and stop condemning me for reaching out to those who most need to know God's 
salvation and God's grace. He said the same thing in Matthew 12, 7, when they condemned him for, or his disciples for picking grain on the Sabbath day to satisfy the hunger. He said, if you had known what this means, I desire compassion. Again, that's our term for mercy. And not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. I think the greatest display, however, of their attitude is in the case of the Samaritan, the parable of the Samaritan. We're not going to go through the whole thing, but you remember it. Jesus is teaching them about what it means to love your neighbor. And he gives them a story. There's a man who goes out, a Samaritan, or excuse me, a man who goes out. He's on this uh, road from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers. They stripped him and they beat him and they went away, leaving him half dead. A priest goes by down the road. And when he saw him, what did he do? He passed by. He passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, what did he do? He walked by and he passed by on the other side. There's a side note here. I saw a video of a, it was a social experiment. And they put this young kid out on the street of New York when it was five degrees, two hours. He stood out there in T-shirt and ended up covering himself in a plastic bag. And everybody walked by him for two hours looking at him, talking on their iPhone and listening to their iPods. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. No compassion. I can't be involved with that. And then next, the Samaritan, the despised Samaritan comes by. And what does he do? He takes compassion on him. He has mercy on him. The one they despised showed the true heart of God. Why these, these leaders utterly despised him and failed to show him mercy. And again, this was the heart of those who were the leaders of Israel. And let me tell you, beloved, we see it today in the church, too. In Westboro Baptist Church, going out to the funerals of those who were murdered, they even had plans to do it to the children, to the families of the children that were murdered here in Newtown, to condemn them, to shout out the most hateful and unmerciful and unkind venom from their mouths. And they do that repeatedly. And yet they would count themselves as being the most faithful Christians. But they do not have God's heart and a heart of mercy. Which is just what he's condemning them for here. It happens in other ways. It happens with those who promise help and healing and get hundreds of thousands. In some cases in third world country, over a million people to come. And they promise them something that God never promised them. And they leave many people disillusioned and hurt and broken and doubting God's goodness because of their lies to them. They are failing to show mercy and they are lying. And so it is with these leaders, leaders of Israel saying you're diligent about your ties, but you do not know God's heart of mercy. If anybody on the planet ought to be models of mercy, it's Christians, for we have received the greatest amount of it. Notice thirdly here, not only do you show no mercy, not only do you show no justice, you also show no faithfulness. The word is pistis, but it doesn't refer to faith toward God in this context. It refers to faithfulness. Faithfulness, in other words, their attitude and their treatment toward other men. Calvin captures it best. He says this. It means nothing else than strict integrity, not to attempt anything by cunning or malice or deceit, but to cultivate towards all that mutual sincerity which every man wishes to be pursued toward himself. That's the idea here. He's talking about walking in integrity, faithfulness in our dealings with others, 
That's how we're to treat men, and yet they failed to do that, as has already been stated. Now, in each of these, God clearly stressed through his words and the prophets that they were to do both. Nothing was to be neglected, but they had neglected the weightier things. They switched around God's value system, and they removed the deepest aspect of it, namely his love. Now, Jesus does not excuse us from any aspect of obedience to his word. Yes, some things have greater weight, but everything is a response of obedience. Everything are we to respond with a hard attitude of obedience. So Jesus says that to them in verse, at the end of the verse. He says, these are the things you should have done without neglecting uh, the others. So God is concerned about all his commandments. They should have tithed, but if it was from a sincere heart, they would have just as zealously pursued integrity. Justice, equity, love, mercy, faithfulness toward others. And again, this is an utterly inexcusable attitude and failure on their part and on our part as much as we do the same. And the only explanation for such hypocrisy he gives in verse 24. He says, you blind guides. You blind guides. Again, pulling out that phrase that shows the sadness of the leadership of this nation. You blind guides, he says, you are straining out a gnat, but swallowing a camel. Now, both of these were unclean. The gnat, because it was an insect, and so they would often put a muslin, a cloth, over their wine to strain out any insects or anything getting into it so as not to be unclean. The camel was the largest animal in Palestine. And it's a picture of absurdity that the Lord is giving, much like he did in Matthew 7. You have a splinter and then a log in somebody's eye. He's saying here you have a gnat and a camel and you're getting rid of the gnat and you're swallowing a camel. In other words, you're paying attention to religious minutia and yet in greater ways you are sinning and rebelling against God by breaking his weightier commandments. Again, their view of holiness was out of proportion. Now, I want to end then with this. Two general points of application. Two general points of application. This is so important for us to understand. It's so important for us to understand. The first is this. That true worship regards every part of God's words and commandments as important. And is careful not to neglect any area of obedience. True worship cannot be broken up into different parts. It is the whole life giving to God given to God in loving gratitude and obedience. We cannot content ourselves ever with obeying God in one area of our life while neglecting him in another and somehow consoling our conscience with the fact that we have obeyed him in one area. It's everything. God requires the whole heart. That you obey him in one area and knowingly disobey him in another is hypocrisy. And you know, unbelievers have this view of God, don't they? Isn't this right at the heart of an unbelieving view of God? Why are you not a sinner or why should God condemn you? Well, because I do good to people. Well, yes, but do you not do wrong? Well, I help somebody across the street. Yes, but do you worship God in your heart? It's supplying one area of failure with an area of supposed obedience. Trying to look at what they've done good and failing to acknowledge their guilt and disobedience. And religious hypocrites do the same. Only they console themselves with religious activity and religious good works. Failing to recognize their sin and failures of obedience in other areas. But true worship pursues obedience in every area of life. Home, work, 
friends, recreation, as well as church. If you have one life among one testimony in your life, in one area of your life, that doesn't comport to another area of your life, that is hypocrisy and exactly what Jesus is addressing here. You can't balance it out like that. It's everything. It's everything. You know, this happens among us, but this is particularly indigent to the system of Roman Catholicism. I sin, I do wrong, but I'm not really deeply concerned with the pang of consciousness because I'll confess my sin. I'll go through my religious ritual. I'll go to Mass, and then everything will be okay. I'll be okay with God. No deep contrition, no deep repentance and desire for obedience of the whole self and walking with God as it is with so many. It's also possible in our own circles who suppose that there is faithfulness in going to religious service and participation in activities, straining out a gnat, making sure we don't fail in any duty that we've been assigned and think I'm okay with God and yet having some areas of sin or failing in another part of our life. This could be happened in obviously legalistic churches where there's a focus on dress the kind of music you listen to, the kind of recreations that you participate in. It can happen to us when we make a big deal out of the organization of activities to the glory of God. It's got to be done in this way and in this manner. Or we make a particular and overblown importance out of an interpretation of a non-essential passage and we break off from people and we accuse them for things that are not denying the gospel but just where we disagree with them. And so we let those things go, and they are a source of criticism and division and bitterness. But we neglect then the more important demonstrations that God says of patience with one another, forbearance, forgiving one another, denying myself for the sake of peace and harmony with another person and love. It can happen to us when we focus, as was mentioned, on correct doctrine, while neglecting humility and mercy to others. We can do that. Listen to what he says in James chapter 1. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religious religion is worthless. How much gossip takes place in the church? How much bitterness takes place in the church? All in the context of religious worship and activity. He says in verse 27, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. And I ask myself, how are we doing in this as a church? I think we need to think, how are we showing mercy in our community? What ways can we think through how to be involved with extending the merciful hand of Christ in our community? I don't know, but that is a question that we need to ask ourselves, and it's something that we need to consider. He says the same thing in chapter 2 of James. He says that you're having these worship services, and people are coming in, but some people are being neglected. And who are being neglected? The poor. The ones who have not as much to offer. The ones who have less advantage to you personally. And who gets all of the honor? The rich. Those who can be the most help to you. He says this, if you do that, have you not dishonored the poor man? Is not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. 
For whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. And what is behind that? What's behind that is this. God is holy. He's holy. It is a perfect and an unbending holiness. And our response to God is holy with all of our lives. He says, you can't, you can't say you honor him in one area while neglecting obedience to him in another area. And particularly, as you'll notice, in every example where Jesus brings us to, to the point or brings it to a point is this, is in our relationships to others, how we treat others as those who claim to love God. Now, the fundamental issue here, then, is the holiness of God. And we'll mention that next week when we look at verses 25 through 28. They're misunderstanding the nature of holiness. And again, Jesus will address that. But notice the last point of application briefly. The first is this, that worship can't be segmented in our lives. It's everything. We can't say, I do this activity and let the sin of pride and greed and covetousness, bitterness, anger, discord in relationships and other things have free reign in our lives and then content ourselves with we're active Christians in the church. That is exactly what Jesus is addressing. That's wrong. But secondly is this, and this is really quite striking. That love for others is the primary demonstration of love for God. Love for others is the primary demonstration of love for God. It is a love particularly for Christians, yes, but it is a love that manifests itself to all men and to all people. Notice the pattern of what Jesus says in verse 23. First, he deals with tithing, and secondly, with their faithfulness and with their mercy and with justice. Tithing relates really to the first table of the Ten Commandments, their relationship to God. It is an act of worship to God, specifically. Secondly, their justice, faith, and mercy relate to their attitude towards others, really the second table of the law, their relation to man and neighbor. And the problem is is that they made a separation between the two. If I could borrow from Calvin one more time, he says this in his Institutes, commenting on this verse. He says, for obedience to the first table was usually either in the intention of the heart or in ceremonies. Listen. Obedience to the first table was usually either in the intention of the heart or in ceremonies. Yet the works of love are such that through them we witness real righteousness. That is extremely discerning. In other words, this is the point. In the performance of ceremonies and external acts, such as tithing, we might give an outward display of devotion to God, but that can't reveal the intention of our heart. That can't reveal the real state of our heart. We can do all of those things with a completely rebellious and wrong heart before God. However, it is in works of love, in the true display of the character of God toward others, that the true condition of our heart before God is most manifest. That's where our intentions are even the most manifest. So true worship, which is at its base an expression of love to God, cannot be dissected between acts towards God and our attitudes and acts towards men who are made in his image. You get that? They're one. They go together. They cannot be separated, which is precisely what Jesus was bringing to us in his answer to the lawyer's question. 
What is the greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's like it. It is connected to it. It cannot be separated from it. If we love God, we will love others. And we will love one another. Let me mention this to you. John 4.20, he says this, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has seen. In other words, if you don't demonstrate and we don't demonstrate God's love toward each other, how in the world can we begin to claim that we have a sincere love for God and for Christ? He says that is totally wrong. It can happen. We can't have divisions and arguing and a lack of gratitude and forgiveness toward one another and claim to love Christ. It's totally inconsistent. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. We cannot separate those two things. And so Jesus is essentially focusing on the second element here because it's the most observable. And saying, in its heart, the greatest demonstration of the reality of love to God first is the practice of love to neighbor. The second commandment, greatest commandment. And again, the reason Jesus singles this out is because that is the most demonstrative of the first. It most reveals it. It most reveals it. If we want to test our love for God and the increase of it, we can look directly to how we treat others and how we think of them and how much we love other Christians. And just as a footnote here, we see that in the very gospel. What was the demonstration of God's love toward us or of Christ's love to the Father? It was his going to the cross to purchase our redemption, that he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So here's the point then. The summary commandment of love to our neighbor demonstrates the reality of the new birth in union with Christ more than any other. It is at the very heart of it. And if you think I'm getting that just from this verse and passage, just listen to Paul as he affirms the same thing. He says this, affirming those who have the Spirit of God, who have been adopted into God's family, who by the Spirit cry out, Abba, Father, those who walk with the Spirit, what is it that demonstrates them? He says for this, You have been called for freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled. Now that's a dramatic statement. The whole law is fulfilled. In what? In the statement, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. What is the summary of the law? To love your neighbor. What is the fruit of the Spirit in regeneration? To love and to walk in love with your neighbor. Listen to this in Romans 13. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the whole law. How can you say you fulfilled the whole law in love for your neighbor? God has said other things because that's Jesus' point. If you love God, that's going to naturally show itself in love for neighbor. So love for neighbor is a fulfillment of the law because it presumes that it is already, the first requirement has already been met, a perfect love to God or a full and a wholehearted love to God. It's the demonstration of it. 
And again, he says this, for this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it's summed up in this statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Love to God and love to neighbor is the fulfillment of the law. We could go through this. I'm just going to mention and close off here. What does it mean then to be conformed to the image of Christ? What does it mean to be conformed to the image of Christ? How is that demonstrated? Well, some might think practically that's by warm feelings that I get towards God or whatever, increased service. But listen again to how Paul describes that to the church at Colossae. He says this, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion. Kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. What does it mean to be conformed to the image of Christ, to be chosen and holy and beloved by God, to be conformed to the image of the one who has created us? As he said earlier, it is to walk in love, compassion, humility, gentleness, patience. That's the mark of the Spirit. What is the last command, or one of the last and the greatest commands that Jesus gave his disciples? And this is utterly antithetical to their system and to these leaders. He says this in verse 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you. And that's the kicker. What's the standard of our love? God's love for us in Christ that you also love one another. How will all men know that you are my disciples? If you have love one for another. Again, this is repeated over and over and over. So what do we want to do to witness to Christ and to demonstrate the reality of our salvation is that we would walk in love. Whatever other outward signs of religious devotion you may find in a legalistic church or an individual, you are not going to find this. A humble and gentle love for others. This is the work of the Spirit of God that flows from our union with Christ and our loving submission to Him who suffered in our place. It's the fruit of growing in our understanding of His grace to sinners like us. What did they? What were they characterized by? By false religion, injustice, lack of mercy, and all in the context of meticulous religious duty. But they failed to demonstrate God's heart of love toward others. And may we not be in that same condemnation. Let's pray. Our God, how can we measure the greatness of what you have done for us? And here we see how easy it is to get turned around in our heart and in our thinking. How deceptive the mind of a fallen man can be. And we know that even as those of us who have the Spirit of God, how we can sometimes fall to this temptation... But it is the very mark of false religionists. It is the very twisting of your commandment. Something that was meant to be good. Something that was meant for the good of others. So turned around to be self-exalting. While neglecting those things that are truly dear to your heart. Which is our relationships. Our relationships that are done with a keen eye to the grace that we've received in you. In salvation, 
that daily grace that sustains us and upholds us by your everlasting arms and your unfailing mercy to us in Christ. May we be a people, not like these false leaders and others that we see around us today, but may we be a people who are marked by our mercy, our justice, by our service to one another, our quickness to forgive, our compassion. And forgive us for failing in those areas, as I deeply know my own need for forgiveness. But we want to change and to honor you. So by your spirit, would you do that in us? And if there's any who hear this or are here with us this morning who do not know you, this reality, who are unmotivated by the fact that you died for sinners, who are unmotivated to deny themselves because of what you have done for them, who would bear in their heart maybe that they have not yet experienced that grace of the Spirit in giving new life, would you call them this morning to true faith and repentance and to cry out to you for forgiveness, reconciliation, and new life. And we entrust them to your care. And we pray these things in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.